0: National Archives podcast series. This talk is called Voices of the Windrush Generation. It was presented by David Matthews and recorded on Saturday the 26th of October 2019 at the National Archives, Kew.
1: really puts the voices of the people who were passengers back into the narrative around Windrush. So it's brilliant to have him here. And so I'm going to hand over to David to speak.
2: Thank you.
0: Okay, so first up, I think what I'll do is just introduce myself in terms of who I am and how I got to write this book, just so that you know that I haven't parachuted into the the subject. And I say that because it's um, something that's very personal to me and very close to my my heart because my parents, uh, both of whom sadly are no longer with us, came to this country in 1962 from what was then British Guiana. Guyana as it is now. So I have to use the, uh, the vernacular skin in the game given that I am a son of the Windrush generation. I was born in 1967 in Hackney in um, in East London. As I say, my parents came here in '62, following a path that many had taken before them, even pre-1948 and pre-the Windrush, because, of course, people from the Caribbean, the Commonwealth and other parts of the... Uh, um, uh, African diaspora have been travelling, coming and going from the British Isles for many, many years. The significance of the Windrush is, of course, is that it's a it's a marker, if you like, of that more contemporary movement. But it didn't start with the the Windrush. The Windrush was the the first significant number of people travelling to the UK as economic migrants from uh, the Caribbean. So my parents came here in, uh, in 1962, and like I said, they trod a, a familiar path in that um, what was quite common for people of that generation coming from that part of the world, and remains so for many migrants the world over, uh, would be that um, the father or male figure with it within a family would come first, often followed by wife or female partner, and then usually over a period that could span, and as I cover in the the book, sometimes several years between often an eldest child and a youngest child. So you could have a, a migratory process that could last five, six years for an entire family to move from the Caribbean to the UK. Bearing all of that in mind, and um, as I say, as someone who is a a child of the the Windrush generation, when I got into um, journalism around about 25 years ago, uh, I started life as a, a cub reporter with a now sadly defunct newspaper called Caribbean Times. And Caribbean Times, which many of you I'm sure will be familiar with, was a a newspaper that was aimed very much at that generation and the sort of older, second-generation members of that community. It was a newspaper that spoke to the hopes, fears, dreams, the current affairs that affected people who had been born in the Caribbean but were living in Britain, putting down roots and uh, becoming a significant part of the fabric of this, um, this country. That, that newspaper is now longer with us. Perhaps there's a lot about how the community has changed. It also raises questions as well that perhaps we'll get into later on about integration, about notions of tolerance and whatnot, and how the community has shifted in terms of its um, relationship to Britain. So I started life like I say as a, as a cub reporter with, with Caribbean Times and from that branched out and moved on working for uh, Fleet Street newspapers all the usual suspects but also uh, getting beyond print journalism into uh, television and radio broadcasting as we used to call it. So I've got now I would say a uh, foot in both camps. I still write quite a lot and of course, uh, uh, Voices of the Windrush Generation is just one example of that and a very recent one um, at that. I've just put to bed a book that I've ghosted for um, a Member of Parliament you may have heard of called David Lammy, who uh, also has an interest in this subject matter and, uh, as luck would have it, is also of Guyanese extraction. Um, I say that because uh, we're often referred to as uh, the Guyanese Mafia. Uh, you tend to find a lot of people like Trevor Phillips, Mike Phillips, Baroness Amos and uh, and, and the like. Uh, uh, when you scratch under the surface, you find out, oh, they're Guyanese. Uh, we have a bit of a reputation for having somewhat uh, big mouths. Don't ask me where that comes from. Uh, but again, we might get into that a little bit later. Because I, I think, in all seriousness, one thing that... Um, I've always been quite keen on, is to communicate, discuss and inform people about the subtle nuances and differences that there are and exist uh, to this day amongst people from the Caribbean, which is a very large, very broad geographical area, but uh, culturally is also that. And I think a lot of the time, particularly in this country, we lose sight of the fact Uh, for one reason or another, sometimes because of perhaps a popular culture and the dominance of certain um, groups or cultures within the Caribbean, that uh, we're not a homogenous whole. But herein lies a conflict. Herein lies a conflict because there's a conflict in terms of the banter and the the ribaldry and the the light-hearted conflict that exists between people of that region. And still plays out today amongst people of my generation, second, and and I think it's sadly being lost in newer generations who are more—I um, hate to use the word—assimilated, perhaps, but are losing some of their Caribbeanness, and also the uniformity and the universality of Caribbeanness. So, if you can imagine, uh, and I, I think those of you who have a, um, a passing interest in um, God, what's that thing that's going on? At at the moment. Oh, Brexit, yeah. That, again, the British Isles in some ways, and internally, but in its relationship with uh, Europe also has this conflict. A sense of independence on the one hand versus a collective identity on the other, and hopefully that's something that we'll, we'll get into in a bit. So, just to wrap up for the moment, I just wanted to mention these things, just to give you a little bit of context about who I am, where I'm coming from. Of course, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, having moved out of what was formerly known as the, uh, um, the black press, of which Caribbean Times was a significant part of that and uh, applied my trade in a more uh, mainstream media sense for many years now. I've never lost sight of not just where I come from, but my relationship to that foundation and also the insights that I have as a result of being a, a child of the Windrush generation. And I say that because, you know, we, we live in a time where there are many uh, misconceptions, misinformation, disinformation about people of not just my cultural background and heritage, but many others. And I think that the important thing. And a key thing that got me into journalism in the first place is to give people who typically do not have a voice a voice within a culture that is large, dynamic, noisy, and where people often on the fringes of that mainstream can struggle uh, to be heard. So um, hopefully I've achieved that in some small way. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about that as the afternoon goes on. But if we could get the first part of the film on... Oh, I should just introduce the film. So, as an example of the televisual work that I do, some years ago, uh, and we're going back to, uh, what, 2016 now, two years before the uh, uh, 70th anniversary of the the, uh, arrival of the Windrush, was the 70th anniversary of the... um, birth of the National Health Service. Now, the National Health Service and the Windrush generation are inexorably linked, as this film demonstrates. But the, the film is essentially about a group of women, a large group of women, who came from the Caribbean to Britain post-Windrush, or post-1946, and the, and the birth of the, the NHS. and I think it's fair to say it helped to save the NHS, because without them, uh, well, we'd be struggling at the moment. So, um, anyway, without further ado, as they say, um, if we could, yeah, let it roll, and we'll just watch the first, sort of third of the film to give you a flavour of what, what it's all about. July the 22nd,
1: 2013 and Prince George, like countless royal princes before him, is presented to the nation by his proud parents. This timeless scene is part of our national story.
2: He's uh, he's a big boy, he's quite heavy.
1: Standing discreetly behind him is a black woman, their midwife, Jackie Dunkley-Bent. Jackie and women like her have played a part in our story too, and this was their moment. Thinking about
3: that time in my life around the the, the royal births, the the, uh, midwives were very proud and there were many uh, midwives from BME Extraction who talked about showing their children the the television. In all honesty, I I was overwhelmed by the impact that it had had on, on, on others.
1: Jackie and her colleague, Erona Ahmed, were following in the footsteps of thousands of Caribbean and African women whose contribution over the years has largely gone unnoticed. Those days, people, when you put on this uniform and your hat and your apron and your belt, the people respected you for that. Oh, I couldn't part with this. This is history. And yet, they have helped create and sustain the NHS
3: for almost 70 years. Without those nurses, we would not have the National Health Service we have now. There's no doubt in my mind that those of us who migrated into England in the National Health Service saved it.
1: They looked after us even at the expense of caring for their own families.
2: My children were always complaining that they never saw me. They never, you know, what is happening, mom? Are these women going to stop having babies?
1: The nation has much to thank them
2: for, but we haven't always shown it. When I turned up on the doorstep, they didn't want me, herself and her husband. I don't want a black nurse coming into my house. I want my whole midwife. If you complained about me being black, there's nothing I can change about it. That's who I am, a black
3: woman, who happened to be a nurse, caring for you.
2: Shows life at Musgrove in the 40s, 50s, 60s. So yes. were you
3: here in the 50s? I was here in the late 50s. And the, queen, and, queen, Mother and the queen Mother came. And I remember us forming a guard of Honor for her. And you could see that we were wearing our yellow dresses and, and the white aprons with our caps on. And it is really a special day.
1: 78-year-old Lynette richards lord qualified as a nurse in 1962 at Musgrove Park Hospital in Somerset before going on to become a midwife.
3: We had our training schools, and um, that was on, oh, and I think the maternity wards were, were on the other side of the building, but these were all general wards. It was very hard work because um, you had three years of training, and your first year, your first year was, you, you were like, um, in sluice. Bedpans, you were, you, you were the bedpan queen. You made them shine and you. you cleaned them. That, that was your job. But, but when you became a second year nurse and you, you passed your first exams, that, that is when you started doing the interesting jobs. That's Anita. Oh. She's from Guyana, like me. I remember being in, the, in that um, group there. She was a, a good friend. When I became a second year nurse, I was supposed to graduate from the bedpans and start doing nice jobs. There was an English girl who was in my set, and, and uh, she she was, doing, she was doing these things, but I was still bed with bedpans. And I mentioned to the sister, she said, well, you know, your turn will come. So I didn't wait for my turn. I went to the matron, and I said to uh, matron, this is what is happening to me. And she said, you leave it with me, Lynette, I will see to it. By the time I went back to the, the ward, things had changed. You, have Until, you some of your nursing skills that you've imposed on Oh, years. I'm sure you can teach me a few things too. All right, all right. <laughs> we'll teach it, each other that. Yes, we will teach each other. <laughs> so it's a sort of very typical ward, what it was like. Yes, Nightingale Ward. Nightingale Ward, yes. 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 And, and, and every, everything was, was had to be straight, you know. All the patients, they, they can't be lying on top of the bed, they have to be in the bed, that type of thing. You know, very, very, very sort of army style.
1: The next journey to Nightingale Wards had its roots in a time when the country needed help to repair the damage of war. Health Minister Anirin Bevan wasn't shy of declaring his ambition for his new National Health Service in 1948. I'm proud about the National Health Service. It's a
0: piece of real socialism. It's a piece of real Christianity too, you know. And there is nowhere in any nation in the world, communist or capitalist, any health service to compare.
1: But there just weren't enough doctors, nurses, and midwives to run it.
3: The National Health Service at that time was straining again, as it is now, under the weight of what it needed to deliver and there were no, not enough nurses. There were not enough nurses to do the job.
1: On July 5th, the new National Health Service starts, providing
2: hospital and specialist services, medicines, drugs, and appliances, care of the
1: teeth. Months into its launch, Bevan announced that the popularity of the service meant it was costing nearly 30% more than he had anticipated. The cost of prescription charges Dentistry and eye care was crippling the service and creating a staffing crisis. It was only a matter of time before the government would have to look beyond its borders for
2: help. Within the 12 months of NHS being created, a report came out which identified there was a shortage. They needed about another 40,000 nurses and midwives. So really from 1949 onwards, there was actually a proactive campaign done by Department of Health and Minister of Labour, where they went out to the the Caribbean uh, and other parts of the Commonwealth uh, to attract, recruit uh, nurses.
3: We helped the mother country during war. We were now being called upon by the mother country to help them in another hour of need. This was not the war. This was care of the British public at time of illness.
1: Thousands of young women answered the call over the years, many with their own reasons for wanting to leave home.
2: I came here pursuing a nursing career. All I wanted ever was to be a nurse.
1: Zena Edmund Charles came to the UK from Jamaica in 1956, age 24, set on fulfilling her childhood dream. At the age of
2: five, I told them like my teachers, family, friends, everybody, that I want to be a nurse and I'm going to be a nurse. At the age of 16, my father, he was a minister, and he thought I was too scornful to do nursing, so he discouraged me from nursing. My mother was a seamstress, so he said, take your mother's trade or be a teacher. I wasn't interested in neither is my original uniform.
1: It's something that is the most precious thing that I have. It's my pride and joy. Beverly Chapman arrived in September 1969 as an 18-year-old with a burning sense of national pride. I remember mainly one of the things that the lady said to me at the embassy. What do you feel about yourself uh as somebody that was born in jamaica going to england and i remember saying i am an ambassador to jamaica i said that i will always put forward the best the best of jamaica as i walk around england and nurse people In 1956, 18-year-old Jean Gay came to the U.K. to escape the cultural constraints of her life in Barbados.
2: God rest my mum, but I was motivated to come to England because I was in this very strict home. You went to church most days of the week and then two or three times on Sundays and so on and so forth. And I just, you know, I wanted to go to pictures and I wanted to go to a party and to a dance and stuff like that. I had this ambition, I wanted to swear. It wasn't allowed in my mum's home. And so on. So, <laughs> when I got to England, the first things I was going to do was to swear at somebody.
1: <laughs> in some cases, families helped save money, and in others, government bonds were purchased by the young would be nurses and midwives to secure their passage to the mother country.
2: I came by boat, it was a 21 day um, voyage. The ship was called the SS Origas.
1: Others arrived by air. All were expecting an idolized version of England, influenced by Shakespeare, Bronte, and traditional country pursuits.
2: I remember being on this very nice trail and everything was grey, grey, very, very grey. It was sort of scary, but it was adventurous at the same time. We ended up at King's Cross and train
1: stations in Jamaica are in the open air and there you can see the sky and
3: you can see fields and you can see cows and the odd sheep. This was this cathedral of steam or smoke. It was it was, it was like something out of a novel. I was completely transfixed by the noise and the smell, and the, it was filthy.
2: I couldn't believe that I was in London. I thought it was the ugliest, the darkest, the most dismal place I had ever seen. My father had a brother in England. When I came to London, I had to get in touch with him. When I got to, the, to his house, they didn't have a bath. And I thought, no, this is England, is this? And I realised it was normal. And I asked him, I said, "Where's your bath? Where do you all bathe?" And he said, "Oh, well, we don't. Um, we go once a week to Caledonia Road baths." And I, <laughs> and I thought, but this is my father's brother. He's a West Indian. How could he live and not bathe? <laughs> This is something that's inherent to in us. You bear twice a day minimum in Trinidad, you know? And I thought, my God, he's really lived here a long time.
1: The women had little time to adjust before being sent to their training hospitals around the country. There, they would encounter long hours, low wages, and little sleep. For those who could stand the pace, was the start of a lifetime working for the NHS.
3: When we started in, 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 the, in the training, we used to go to a classroom and, and we were taught the theory of nursing. And then they had another room where they called it a practical room, where you had dummies and you showed, you showed them how to wash patients and so on. We had things like what they call the pressure areas, you how to, to rub the, the backs and, and rub the bottoms. And, uh, and, and you were shown how to do the injections and that type of thing. And then after three months, you, you, you took an exam and you were t- sent to the wards. And that's when you were let loose to the patients. Right? <laughs> Poor patients. By 1955,
1: recruitment was still ongoing despite tens of thousands of black nurses having arrived in the UK, the majority coming from the Caribbean but there was a catch. It seemed not all NHS recruits were created equal. State enrolled nurses sat a two year course and were seen as practical support staff as opposed to the state registered nurses who trained for three years and were eligible for promotion to roles such as ward sister. Many black women, regardless of ability, were funneled into the junior SEN category right up until it was abolished in the mid 1980s
3: there are also a lot of very negative cultural assumptions going on. There was an expectation that they would not be able to cope with a higher nursing qualification of a state registered nurse compared to the slightly lower one of a state enrolled nurse. And a lot of them ended up um, on the state enrolled nurse program, which was an inferior qualification, didn't have international recognition, and they didn't realize until it was too late to opt out. I felt like I was nothing. I was just just a slave, just you no, know, just taken for granted. I feel low, very low, as if I was inferior. They make you feel like that. They didn't made you feel like that. And the funny thing, I'm a very outspoken person, but then I swallowed my pride because I want to achieve. <laughs>
1: Life in the mother country was proving to be far more challenging than they had expected.
0: Thank you. So that film gives you a flavour, of course, of the experiences of nurses from the Caribbean post-Windrush post, uh, post wind rush or post-the uh, um, the birth of the NHS. One of the significant things, I think, about the the style of the film and how we went about putting it together, which in an age of very fast editing and directorial uh, or directing techniques and a lot of whiz-bang CGI and even now very low-budget technological gimmicks that can um, sass up a film. It's a very slow, measured and thoughtful, I think, uh, piece of work in that a lot of the story you can tell stylistically is really being told by the women themselves. It is, for want of a better term, um, you know, visual oral history, and that that approach, that methodology, was of course the primary mo of uh, the book that I'm going to to read uh, from to you in a moment. Now, after um, after the reading, there'll be an opportunity for bit of Q&A. You may well have some questions related to the, uh, the film. No doubt, of course, you'll have questions related to the book as well. But uh, um, the passage I'm going to read from, and you'll have to forgive me, uh, I am inclined at times to, when reading from such material, uh, slip into character, as it were. So, uh, uh, but I don't want to be criticized for my uh, accents or or, uh, cadence, for that matter. Uh, What I I will be mindful of doing is, as it were, uh, internally bleeping some of the language uh, in this particular passage. And I say that because the character, or the contributor, that uh, um, I'm going to uh, uh, read about now and uh, give you his uh, first-person account of his individual journey to um, to the UK is uh, a guy called Charlie Phillips, who was uh, born in Jamaica in 1944 and uh, spent much of his childhood with his grandparents before emigrating to Britain in 1956, uh, where he joined his mother and father in Notting Hill, West London. Now, uh, having started out with a Kodak Brownie for over six decades, Charlie has ...photographed and documented in um, an incredible fashion the lives, the everyday lives of uh, particularly people of West Indian as it were... ...descent in and around uh, West London, other parts of London, other parts of the, the country. His work has been displayed in the v and Tate Britain and the, uh, the National Portrait Gallery. I met Charlie some time ago via a mutual friend... And uh, Charlie is, and uh, maybe some of you may be familiar uh, with him or his work. He is, um, what's the best way of uh, summing him up? Irrepressible, I think. Um, I think would be the best way to describe him. And when the opportunity to write this book came up, and I should actually explain just a little bit before I launch into uh, his particular di- diatribe should explain, the book came about in uh, the sort of early part of 2018. I got a call from a publisher that I'd worked with previously on another book, oddly enough, which was on uh, a, a crime book, for want of a better term. And uh, publishing, you know, being quite an incestuous sort of world, but also it being the kind of world where, as we say in the East End, you don't get many of me to the pound. By that I mean there aren't really that many authors of my particular cultural background active in this country which is of course a crying shame but it consequently means that when subjects like the Windrush immigration scandal as it was typified at that time and had been manifesting itself for, for quite some time, and as I also mentioned uh, in the introduction to the book, this uh, don't be fooled by uh, uh, some of the reporting of the uh, Windrush scandal as it's been, uh, uh, as it's now known. Uh, you know, this is a problem on the dark side of the Windrush generation, if you like. It's been something that, as I said, when I first started writing for the Caribbean Times 25 years ago, I was dealing with these stories. It's nothing new. And I'm not uh, here to cast uh, aspersions on anyone who's now dining out on the subject as if they've broken some revelationary story or or what have you. But many of us have been beavering away on individual stories to do with people who have been absolutely wronged by the state in terms of their uh, immigration status for many, many years. But that said this was not something that I wanted to get bogged down in with this book. For a number of reasons. Again, uh, as we've just seen with the uh, uh, the Nurses documentary, and yes, undoubtedly, issues to do with discrimination and racism invariably crop up in these sort of narratives. However, I think all too often they can become too much of a an overriding narrative. As you can see from the, the testimonies of uh, some of the the women you've just heard from. Many of them are gregarious, funny, engaging people. The operative word being people. We're all people. We all have to tough things out from time to time, but we all like to have a laugh. We we like to have a good time. And we're not always bogged down by the discriminations and the, the obstacles that are put our way. And I thought that was something very important that I wanted to get across in this book. I didn't want the book to be... You know, a tome about a, a political problem, a social problem that is still ongoing, is still unresolved. What I wanted to feature, what I wanted to give voice to were people's individual experiences in their words. And I suppose, uh, if I'm honest about it, in quite an abstract way, because it's very difficult to capture an individual's voice to capture their story, narratively speaking, in in terms of oral history. It's one thing if you're doing a, um, a biography or an autobiography and you have the space and the freedom to flesh that person out. Also as well in journalistic terms and again in biographical terms where you've got the opportunity as the author to add in your own voice or your own exposition as it were. Sometimes to challenge what an individual is saying, you can balance things in a, in a way that fleshes the story out. When you're dealing with one person's story, or a series of individual stories in a one-dimensional way, getting their voice right, being authentic and true to how they sound, how they act, how they feel, their sensibility is really difficult, uh, not least because what you don't want to do is to make them a cartoon character. So again, in terms of giving someone an accent, appreciating the tone of their voice, how they speak, and I've got to say, in Charlie's case, their uh, um, liberal use of expletives, which, as I say, I will uh, redact for the uh, uh, the sensitivity of the, the audience uh, today. But uh, I must say that just before I uh, I launch into this, when the book came out, and and sorry, I must backtrack that the book came out as a result of in early 2018 this heightening sense of the topicality of the Windrush issue. I had a lot on at the time but I felt I was given a a choice in the sense that uh, I was offered the opportunity to write the book and I honestly thought well if I don't write it who else is going to do it. Now that might sound really arrogant and of course there are many other authors who have dealt with this subject before and Even uh, right up until uh, this month, a book, um, oddly enough, also called Voices of the Windrush (laughs) Generation, uh, was published. So I'm I'm not the only one with skin in the game. However, I think when you're given an opportunity like this, it came not long after my mother had died. I felt a sense of responsibility, of duty to my community and also homage to those that had come before me. So I took it on. And in no time at all, I turned the book around. I didn't have the time and the space and the resources to do it the way I would have designed myself, but needs must. So the book comes out last um, October. And uh, the first person who contributed to the book to get on to me about it was Charlie Phillips. He calls me up one day, and there's a moment of dread that... uh, authors have and you know if they tell you otherwise they're lying when someone they have interviewed or characterised in a piece of work uh, and same thing goes for producers or uh, directors of documentaries somehow gets hold of you uh, and I say somehow gets hold of you because a lot of a lot of us like to live in the shadows uh, I'm not one of those people I'm, I'm quite happy to um, meet with uh, fans and detractors <laughs> alike but um Charlie called me up one day and he said uh, "Oh, David uh, yes sir uh, I met someone and uh, they read the book I said oh really Charlie and uh, so uh, you know what was their what was their verdict well uh, they said there was a lot of fucking swearing in it <laughs> I said well Ch- yeah there is Charlie uh, that's because you do swear quite a lot well, I suppose that's fucking true. Anyway, well done, and that—that that was that. Anyway, I got two F words in, and that's as far as I'll—I'll I'll go. But uh, yes, Charlie has uh, a very uh, uh, colourful use of language, but he's a fantastic, uh, fantastic person, a fantastic photographer, and he made for a superb contributor to my book. So I'm going to—I'm going to read uh, from his uh, chapter now. At some point, it's quite a long chapter, but at some point, a natural break will occur and I'll, I'll stop. Uh, so here goes. Over the years, I documented this area, Notting Hill, and its leading lights in terms of leading representation of the black community in this country. We're the only light. Our culture has been overlooked, even by our own people. It's this generation who are beginning to recognize us. When I had my last exhibition at the National Theatre, people brought their kids to see who their grand, great-grandparents are, as we were coming up to the 70th anniversary of the Windrush. But there's been a missing gap. Young people were coming up to me and saying, thank you very much, Mr. Phillips, you're the only one. That's the only thing that keeps me going. I always like to start off with that, what it was like, being British, growing up in the colonies. I was born in Jamaica in the 1940s. One of the biggest things I can always recall is when the queen came to Jamaica in 1954 after the coronation. In the village where I was, people would cry, the queen are come, the queen are come. Oh queen is coming, the queen are come. And I always had this flashback because I lived in the countryside. St. Mary, which was nice and cool. We were in the Wolf Club. and We thought we knew everything about Britain. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Those are the songs we used to sing. I always remember why I have to include this part of my documentation. I get so excited because at first they said, the Queen is the most beautiful woman in the world. It's not until later on, when under colonialism, that I know what she represents. And we were supposed to be her subjects. That's later on in life. As a seven-year-old, the queen of com, the queen of com. I was living with my grandmother, and she was so proud when she brought me my cub uniform and my little cub cap. And for weeks, we were drilling left, right, left, right, Standard at ease, the queen a come, the queen a come. Then we used to sing, God save our gracious queen. When the queen passed by, you're going to sing, God save the queen. Now the point is, we had to be getting up at five o'clock in the morning, jumping on this bus to go to Kingston and meet our queen. It was so hot. I'd never been to Kingston before. It was so hot because in the country where I used to live, my granny used to say, come out the sun, come out the sun, come out the sun, to stop me getting dark. And to this day, I can't take the sun, but that's another story. Now, we were in a place called Racecourse, where we were supposed to meet the queen. And everything was delayed, and every minute, the queen are come, the queen a come, the queen a come. Anyway, it was so hot, I remember that day, it was so hot that my granny took me out, out of the platoon, brought me a snowball and asked the man to wet the rag and tie four knots in the handkerchief to put pun me head and put me head to cool me down. Anyway, when everybody cooled down and got back in line, all of a sudden, they handed us these little Union Jack flags made out of printed paper. The scoutmaster said, when the queen comes, shout, God save the queen. God save the queen. God save the queen. Everybody had these paper flags. When she finally arrived, I thought, she's going to stop and say, oh, hello, son. What's your name? But she just waved. We spent five hours in the morning waiting for the queen to come, you know. And she just drove by waving. Seriously, seriously, how patriotic we were as British subjects. How indoctrinated to be British. No, seriously. Nowadays, no pickney would get up at five o'clock in the morning. Well, probably not to meet the Queen. But I was one of those kids because I was so patriotic. So patriotic to be British. So proud to be British. So proud to know we were the mother country that was my indoctrination against my will without me thinking the indoctrination was the news we got from abroad i was a roman catholic and father always knows this and father always knows that and looking back at it well that's another subject how hypocritical it was i used to go to confession i did nothing wrong but i had to make <laughs> but I had to make that up <laughs> Sorry, but I had to make up that I'd done something wrong. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. You see, I was being groomed to be a priest, you know. Looking back at it, my granny was a diehard Catholic. When I say that, we used to go to church twice on a Sunday. Then I had to go to Sunday school. And on a Saturday, I had to go to confession. It shows you again how indoctrinated you were. That you idolized the European figure. Looking back 75 years later, how indoctrinated you were. Where to take your mind away and they tell you anything and you're not supposed to question it. This is where they feed you the BS. Through the church and through the institutions. After the Queen went, it was so hot. I remember this day very clearly. The driver of the coach decided to take us to the seaside. I'd never seen the sea before. I was a country boy. And outside Kingston Harbour was the Royal Yacht Britannia. And it looked so pretty. I have an inquisitive mind. When the man said, it's made out of iron, you know. I said, then sir, how come a big piece of iron like that can float like that? I can't tell you no, son. It can take a long time to explain the law of physics. But I was so amazed by this yacht and ever since then, I became fascinated with boats and ships. Now, four years later, a lot of people were going to England because they believed in the mother country. The mother country needs you to come and help. And looking back at it, I saw people selling their goats, pigs, cows and their land. The land they used to sell for $5 an acre to get that £45 passage. The sacrifice we made as British citizens. We also had a Governor General called Mr Hugh McIntosh Foot at that time. He had to sign our passports. I didn't hold a whole original British passport. I was one of the kids that, when I moved to Kingston, I used to have... A lot of arty figures because I used to help people in the marketplace. I was 9 or 10 years old. I was one of the kids on the waterfront sometimes diving. There used to be a lot of people selling goods on the waterfront like souvenirs for when the tourists came in. I used to have a money wall because Jamaica at the time was a big center to the US Atlantic fleet and there used to be a lot of navy ships We used to sell to them. In 1954, when I came to Kingston, I was so fascinated by the ships that after school, I would go down to the docks. The passenger ships would leave from there to take immigrants to England. Now, this is my first enterprise. They used to say, Come here, boy. You can go buy me a bucket of cigarettes before me go. I used to run errands for these people. There used to be sweets called Mint Balls and Paradise Plum for the last minute passengers, you know. They say if you suck the Mint Ball, you won't get seasick. And they used to go and buy pick-a-pepper sauce because they said the food on the board isn't spicy enough. And When the ship started to leave, they would throw coins over, hoping one day they would return and see Jamaica again. I used to be one of the pickney them, used to dive off the pier, before the coin hit the bottom, we would grab the coin. This is part of being British for the mother country, your contribution to the mother country of immigrants who have given up their lives and their livelihood. And some of the people who used to sell on the seafront also used to sell in the market. We used to call them Higglers. A lot of Higglers took a liking to me and because of me brown skin, They used to call me Reds, and I still meet up with about four of them. One of them just died the other day. In those days, we had to have manners, and in our community, we had a lot of auntie and uncle figures. I can say I was different from all the kids because I always had an inquisitive mind. But my little childhood days was to sit on the docks, number one, number two, number three, to watch the passenger ships coming in and going out. And you would see them bawling. Lord, you are going to England. Make sure you drink plenty of soup, you ear. Make sure you take a washout. Make sure you take a washout, you ear." That is part of the legacy. And then the English ships used to come in, like the Royal Mail Ship Line, and the Pacific Steam Navigation Company, especially the PSNC ships. Most people take a washout. Uh, That, I should explain, is a laxative cleanse. About a week before leaving for England, the banana boats used to come and they used to take between 12 and 24 passengers. The banana boat was a bit cheaper, hence the Spanish and the Italians got into the immigration trade. This was when the fare was 65 to 75 pounds. In those days, looking back at it, a lot of us didn't come here as destitute immigrants to raise 75 pounds in the 1950s. The sacrifice the people made to sell their land and their belongings because they believed so much in the mother country. This, this hasn't been acknowledged. While they were doing this, people were paying six to ten pounds to go all the way to Australia and New Zealand. The historians don't tell you how many people migrated from England to Australia. Uh, Sorry, to England, Australia, from England to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Rhodesia, Kenya. Even last night there was a program about the Indian migration. After independence, many English people had come back to England. English migration is even bigger than the black migration. It's not balanced. and This is why I confront some of these people who make these stupid programs. We have to balance it. Anyway, when my time came to come to England, my father had already come with my stepmother. He used to send home 15 shillings a month and we had to survive. As I said, when you mix a lot of Higglers, you can't go hungry even though I didn't have a stable diet for months. I lived on avocado pear and a tin called bulla, ginger cake. It was fine because many a times I would get the stale bread from the bakers and carry it down to a fisherman friend of mine. Walking down to Greenwich Park, he'd give me a couple of fish and I'd take them home and roast them. I was coming to England now, after seeing all these people who had immigrated. And I was so excited, as I had never been on a ship before. I was about 11 years old. I was born in 1944 and came to the UK in 1956. I came with two other people who used to live in the same yard and my half-sister. We came with two other people as kids. And when we lived in Kingston, we lived in a tenement yard. It was a compound there would be a communal kitchen and bathroom. I remember them, send me a landing suit. The landing suit was a big ting. It was a oversized Burton suit with a poplin shirt, which you didn't have to iron. You get the outfit about two months before you come in. Never wore shoes in my life. When you come to England, you have to wear your landing suit. The idea behind the landing suit was to look smart, dapper. Most of the suits that those guys had were bought in America. When they did the farm working, this is why the zoot suit became so popular. You must understand this well, how the fashion changed in England after our presence. That wasn't, that hasn't been properly documented. But when you look at some of the archives, we didn't come as no destitute immigrants. The mother country called as far as I'm concerned, and we answered. My ticket would have cost £35 because I was a youth, but the average fare was £75. The Chinese travel agency was the main travel service, or we used to travel with Graces, another agency. My parents came in 1955, and I came in 1956. Me and a half-sister came up, and two of our neighbours from the same compound. We travelled together. One of the people was Carmen. We used to play together. She was the same age as me. And this other lady, Mamacita, I came up on a ship called Reina del Pacifico, which was a British registered ship, part of the Royal Mail line. Royal Mail was a shipping company from England that served Jamaica. They used to bring down all the colonial staff, including the governor general and some of the plantation owners. The kids who used to go to boarding school in England would be brought to Jamaica with their families on the ship for the the summer holidays. A Norwegian shipping company used to run the banana boats. There was the Royal Mail lines who was a big player and also Harrison lines which served the Caribbean. Harrison used to serve Barbados and the Eastern Caribbean and sometimes Jamaica. These are the ships I'd see in the Kingston Harbour as I was growing up as a child. I fantasised about going to England and it did happen. I'll stop there. So, um, so yeah. So, as you can, as you can tell, and as I aim to do, and uh, um, I was indicating just a moment ago, I wanted to get the voice of people like Charlie across as authentically as possible. And you'll have to forgive me where I stumble in places because, you know, as a writer, you're so used to manipulating other people's words often to make them far more understandable than they are in real life. But anyone who appreciates conversation knows, knows very well that people do not talk the way that they're often documented, uh, certainly in newspapers, for one thing. I mean, uh, when was the last time anyone, you had a problem with anyone and you slammed them? When was the last time you ever saw anyone engage in a race war? The sort of language that is used typically in newspapers is not really authentic. But that said, when you go down the route of oral history, and uh, I must say that uh, um, one of my um, heroes, if you like, or influences for this particular style of writing, which I've got to say again, you know, is not my sort of day job, as it were. I work in a much more narrative non-fiction sense. But I was uh, influenced by um, uh, the oral historian um, Studs Terkel, who um, made much capital out of documenting the lives of what I would call ordinary people who do extraordinary things, and that's really what gets me up in in the morning. Thanks. This podcast is copyright the National Archives all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.